chapter 2. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, you can grab a blue Bible. It should be in the chair in front of you. And um, if it's not in the chair in front of you, tap on someone and say, get me one. And you can turn that to page 984, and you'll find yourself in the text this morning. Colossians 2, page 984, if you're in the blue Bible. What would you do if you were at sea in a ship and it broke down? Now this thing's starting to sink and there would be one objective in your brain, wouldn't there? Survive. So you would grab anything. You would grab a life preserver. Uh, If there was a piece of wreckage from the ship, you would grab onto that and hold on it. Now you know in your mind though that while you're lost at sea that this is just a temporary solution. It's not going to carry you to the land wherever you are. In fact, you would need someone to come along, pull you out of the water, place you into the boat, and take you to the land. Now, this is a picture that theologians have used to describe our spiritual state without Christ. We are lost at sea. The ship of humanity is sunk, and we're holding on to whatever we can find, trying to make it in this world. Life preservers like uh, moral principles, religious practices, spiritual experiences— Pieces of wreckage that things in their normal place and proper usage that are good, like education, career, physical beauty, romance, family. But none of these things ever intended to serve as a savior to us. No matter what we hold on to, we're still lost at sea. We need to be rescued. We need a pair of strong arms to to pull us out of the icy waves and to put us on a ship and to bring us home to harbor. And when I look at a room like this, it's likely that a lot of you have experienced this already in Christ. You were lost, but now you're found. You were struggling to breathe, but you were brought on board, and now you breathe freely in Him. But the question is, why is it that when we get pulled onto that ship, we still cling to life preservers and wreckage? Why is it that we cling to things like religious practices, our own sense of our morality, like I'm a good person? I mean, does it add anything to your safety to hold on to a life preserver while you're on the boat? I think Paul, in the next couple of weeks, is going to say, look, clinging on to these things isn't going to make you any safer when you're sitting on an unsinkable ship. In fact, he's going to ask us this question, What can you possibly add to a complete salvation? Why cling to life preservers? Why cling to wreckage when you have such a sturdy ship to take you home? And in fact, I think Paul's going to say to us, why don't you just throw those things overboard? You can learn how to enjoy the ride without clinging on to those things. So that's what we're looking at in our text this morning for the next couple of weeks. Paul's going to share a couple of principles with us. Uh, The first principle that he's going to share with us on how to enjoy the ride is to continue to walk in Jesus. If Jesus is the one who pulled us out of the water, if he's placed us on this secure boat, it only makes sense that we would continue in him. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So these are kind of like uh, the two applicational core verses of Colossians. 
If you want to apply all the things that we've been learning in Colossians, apply these verses. Paul's saying this is the ship. This is the life on the ship. This is how you enjoy the ride. So when you were first uh, born again, he says you received Christ as Lord. To receive Christ is not just a simple nod of the head. It's not a verbal affirmation. It is accepting Jesus in his fullness. It's everything that we've been looking at in Colossians before, saying that he is God, that he is the creator, that he has reconciled all things to himself. And we even ask the question, if Jesus is all those things, if this is true, what kind of implication does it have for my life? So just as you've received him, Paul says, so walk in him. How do you do that? Well, let me read it to you in a different translation. Verse 7, New American Standard Bible. He says, Having been firmly rooted, now being built up in him, and established in your faith just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. I want you to understand that these phrases that Paul is saying here are incredibly encouraging if you're a Christian. Think of it like this. The world can be brutal. That's just a fact of life. I mean, we're watching the newsreels, we're seeing the devastations that have been brought through uh, either human sin or the weather. And maybe some of you learned this at a really young age. Maybe at the age of three or four, you started learning that life is hard. That people let you down and you let them down and circumstances can get out of your control and you had a vision in your mind of a dream that you felt was something that could be accomplished in your life and that dream was shattered. You're watching the newsreels. You're watching society unravel. And maybe worst of all you ask, is my life going anywhere? Am I adding any value to the world? Well, Paul says in contradistinction to that, you have been rooted in Christ. I think you noticed that past tense verbiage there. Now, if you're a nerd like me and you enjoy the Greek language, it's actually a perfect passive participle. You like that? A perfect passive participle means that there's been something done on your behalf in the past and the benefits of that action carry forward to today and on into eternity. You know what that is? You have been rooted in Christ. This is your identity. This is your security. This is your strength even when you feel like you are wandering aimlessly. Whatever you encounter in life, whether good or bad, it doesn't matter. You have been rooted in Christ. And then he moves on to say you are being built in Christ. Have you ever felt stuck in the faith? Like you're wearing concrete spiritual shoes, you're reading your Bible, you're praying. No matter what you're doing though, it doesn't seem like you're moving forward. In fact, you're not moving forward, but it feels like you're actually moving backwards instead of progress. There's regress. Well, it doesn't matter how you feel. Paul says you are being built in Christ. It's a present passive participle. It means an activity that God is currently doing. God has a work permit perpetually called out for your heart. He's building your inner person up. That's an alarm right there. That's cool. 
Sometimes the work is major, you know? It's like, like the gutting of a room, the rewiring of the room, the applying of drywall, the countertops of granite in the cupboards. But other times the work, well, it's almost imperceptible. A brick needs changed here. A piece of wood needs refinished. But always and purposely, God is at work. Now the question is, can you get in the way of that? Sure you can. You can tear down the things that God's building. But even here, Paul is saying to us that God ultimately won't give up on you. How do we know this? Well, Paul says next that we are being established in the faith. It's a term that is used to describe the practice of guaranteeing a legal contract where God has formally pledged that he will grow us in the grace and knowledge of his Son. So rooted in Christ, built up in Christ, being firmly established in the faith, all passive participles, all things that God has done. You don't get yourself on the ship, Paul is saying. You don't keep yourself on the ship. It's the captain of the souls that does these things. There's only one active participle out of all of these abounding in thanksgiving that's what we do how do you respond to someone who has saved your life this past week we were stunned when we learned that Stephen Paddock opened fire from the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino into a crowd of 22,000 unsuspecting suspecting concert goers The shooting in Las Vegas has been said to be the worst in our current history. 58 people lost their lives, close to 500 injured. While Paddock demonstrates the worst of humanity, we also saw, though, in this event, instances of true heroism. Tom McIntosh was among the crowd when bullets began slicing through the air and running towards a wall. He helped his wife to get over the wall, and then he helped another concert goer to get over the wall. And as he was trying to get himself over the wall, a bullet came and hit him in the leg. He said, I jumped over the wall and kind of walked trying to get away, but was bleeding really bad. My pants were already soaked, and my shoe was full of blood. He was bleeding to death. Now, lucky for McIntosh, a complete stranger with an Army Rangers or an Army Reserves training as an EMT stumbled upon him. The man took his belt and he stopped the bleeding and he waited with McIntosh until someone would come along and take him to the hospital. Now, this event happened so quickly that McIntosh didn't even get the guy's name. He only knew that this man had saved his life. And the next day, McIntosh was then featured on the Today Show in an interview with Savannah Guthrie, and it was there that he first met and learned the name of the guy who saved him, James Lawson. McIntosh was at a complete loss for words. He just hugged Lawson gratefully, and he said, thanks, buddy. I really appreciate it. I was so scared. And what more could McIntosh say? I mean, what more could he do? What more can we do about our salvation? How, can we, or how should we respond to a God who has done all of these things for us in Christ? Well, one writer tells us that thankfulness is a good test of our spiritual states. A thankless spirit betrays a life which is no longer focused on the greatness of Christ. It is looking down, not up. 
Thankless hearts herald spiritual health. As Paul is saying, if you want to flourish in Christ, it really just begins by grabbing hold of him and not letting go and saying thank you, thank you, instead of clinging to other things just in case Christ doesn't see you through. And this is where Paul heads next. He says, avoid flawed philosophies. Look with me at verse 8. These are the things that we cling to in this world. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, in this text, Paul's talking about ideas. Ideas. Ideas can be powerful things. They can use, uh, use for great good, like innovation and medical advancements. They can also be incredibly destructive. More often than not, though, ideas are rarely indifferent or neutral. This is why Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, that word philosophy that he uses there is only used here in the New Testament. And I don't believe that Paul about philosophy in the sense of the study of philosophy that people engage in. Um, that word philosophy just simply means the love of wisdom. It's a great discipline. From it, we get things like logic. In fact, I wish people would use logic more often. No, when he's talking about philosophy, he's talking about philosophies that are hollow and deceptive. In verse 4, Paul says that they're plausible arguments, meaning that they sound intelligent. I mean, I've heard incredibly uh, stupid things said incredibly well. It's like a finely wrapped piece of garbage. And if we're not careful, Christians, Paul says you can be taken captive by that. Uh, it's the same type of language that you would talk about kidnapping someone. So imagine that you're uh, home in your Christian worldview and someone comes along and rips you away from that with some vacuous, nonsensical gobbledygook. How do Christians avoid being kidnapped? You guard this. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This is not just a passage about sexual purity. I remember when I was in junior high, they would say, guard your heart, and that meant like don't make out with girls in the dark and date people that don't know Jesus. But he's talking about more than that here. Because remember, the heart is the place of thought and reason and deliberation. It involves our will and our thoughts, and this is why Christians, we saw last week, need strong hearts, united hearts, assured hearts. That's how you guard your heart. I want to give you a couple of principles about guarding your heart when it comes to ideas. The first principle is to understand that everyone is a philosopher. Everyone is pushing forward ideas. We're all swimming in a cultural soup together and people want to add to the idea pool. Lady Gaga, the world-class entertainer. Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX. Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook. Bill Condon, screenwriter and director who directed 2017 version of Beauty and the Beast. They are all philosophers. Who are you listening to? With what frequency? And do you understand their message? 
You see, the second principle is this, that ideas have names. Know them. Do you know how to call a spade a spade? Do you know what the philosophy is and where its logical conclusion goes? In his book, Seven Toxic Ideas Polluting Your Mind, Anthony Silvagio addresses some of the current ideas that are so powerfully pervasive in our culture. Now, I'm going to share two of these with you. Um, if you want to learn more about the stuff that's polluting your mind, well, you're going to have to pick up the book and read it yourself. How's that sound? Moral relativism is one of them. Why is it that in light of the shootings of Las Vegas, our political discourse struggles to use the word evil? Moral relativism. It is the idea that there is no such thing as universal truth. Morally, it's a simple, uh, that morality is simply a construct of our society in the age that we live in. There's no unchanging standard, so essentially the only thing that is sinful is to actually call something sinful. It is an intolerant tolerance. Now, how does this line up with the biblical worldview? Well, not very well. Because God has an unchanging standard of right and wrong. And the standard is not based upon some social construct. It's based upon the timeless, eternal character of God. Here's another one. Individualism. Why do we struggle to maintain community in churches? Individualism. Now, there's nothing wrong with elevating the worth of the individual. However, when it becomes um, unhealthy is when the individual becomes the center of the universe, which leads then to selfishness, narcissism, and selfie sticks. And let me just say this. When we become the center of the universe, the universe gets incredibly small. It was uh, John Donne the great English poet who wrote, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And scripture would even say to us that community is not just a good idea, it's essential for us to grow in Christ. So you see that? Everyone's a philosopher. Know the ideas, name them. And thirdly, understand that ideas have consequences. It was Richard M. Weaver who coined this ex expression. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Consequence of Ideas, recalls meeting a janitor over his summer break during college. And the man was brilliant. They started talking philosophy and he would speak on Descartes, Plato, Hegel, Kant, Kierkegaard, and others. And Sproul, a philosophy major of that time, was shocked. I mean, how could such a well-educated man be pushing dirt? Well, he was a philosopher, so... It's not that surprising. But here's the reason. His story was heart-wrenching. He was from Germany and had his PhD in philosophy and formerly served as a professor in Berlin. When Hitler came to power, the Nazis were not content to find the final solutions just for the Jews and the gypsies. No, they also sought to eliminate intellectuals whose ideas were at odds with the values of the Third Reich. So that when this man spoke against the Nazis, his wife and all but one of his children were arrested and put to death. He fled to America and he vowed that he would never teach again because he said philosophy had killed his family. R.C. Sproul writes, When I heard this man's story, I was in my 20s. 
To me, World War II is a dim memory. To a 24-year-old, 14 years seems like an eternity. But to my German friend who was in his mid-50s, the war years seemed like yesterday. I was pushing a broom because I lived in a culture that sees little value in philosophy and gives scant esteem to those who pursue it. But my friend was pushing a broom, on the other hand, because he came from a culture that gave great weight to philosophy. Hitler so feared the consequences of my friend's ideas that he did everything possible to eliminate him and his ideas. Ideas have consequences, and ultimately Paul says that a lot of these philosophies are unhealthy because of three reasons. One is that they are of human origin, according to human tradition. Two, they are demonic, according to the elemental spirits meaning that there's this demonic energy behind some of these philosophies that are meant to destroy human life and destroy our understanding of who Christ is. And that's the third problem. They're not according to Christ. So as Paul moves us forward, he says, don't cling to these so-called better philosophies. They're not going to add fullness to your life. Look to Jesus. And that's the third implication that we see in this text. There is a better philosophy. Everything you need is in Christ. Now, in Christ is a profound and deep reality that Paul uses to talk about our identity. It's interesting when you look at the New Testament, you would think that the word Christian is the word that we would use to talk about our identity. Christ one's Christian. But when you look at the Bible, that word is only used three times. And out of all the times that Paul writes, he never uses it. You want to know how he refers to Christians? Being in Christ. 165 times. Uh, One commentator says this, being in Christ is the essence of the Christian proclamation and experience. Without treating the in Christ motif, we miss the heart of the Christian message. Now what is this in Christ thing all about? Well, it's incredibly hard, actually. I mean, Paul uses metaphors to try to describe it like, like a body. He describes the church as a body or, or being connected to a vine. It can be hard to express some of these things, but we'll take a stab at it. In Christ means that Christ represents those who place their faith in him. I'm going to attempt a sports analogy here. And this is probably not going to go well, but we'll try it. When the forward on a soccer team scores the winning goal, that goal and the victory belongs to the entire team. Even the players riding the bench, even the guy chowing down on buffalo wings through the television, even the person that didn't see the game but comes along later and she says, hey, did we win? They all participate together in another's victory. Rankin Wilburn writes, when we, were, when we are in Christ, every part of Christ's life, not only is death, has significance for us. We share in his life and obedience, his death and his resurrection, even his ascension. We participate in another's victory. All that is his becomes ours. Well, how can that be? <laughs> like I said, it's incredibly tough stuff. 
but it's good and it's rich. And Paul talks about five reasons that all of these things are ours in Christ. The first set, uh, that he talks about is we are full in Christ. Look at verses nine and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I mean, how do you put language to the, uh, the fact that Jesus be- became a man, that God became man? In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I think poetry probably does the best job of capturing it. Spurgeon said, infinite and yet an infant. Eternal and yet born of a woman. Almighty and yet nursing at a woman's breast. Supporting the universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. Heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. Augustine would say, man's maker was made man, that the bread might be hungry, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey, that strength might be made weak, that life might die. God in Christ assumed our full humanity so that he could heal our full humanity. And Paul says we are filled in him. Every human heart has this God-shaped hole that we try to fill with different things, whether it be education or pleasure or career or reputation, and on and on and on it goes. But the only one that can fill that void is the one whom the fullness of God resides in. And in him, We are full. Paul goes on to say that we are crucified, buried, and raised in Christ. I mean, it just gets more and more complex as we go forward. Look at verses 11 and 12. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now Paul gets a little graphic and talks about circumcision. If you don't know what that means, just go home later and Google it or ask your mom. Well, actually, you know what? Put the picture up that I got. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Um, Now, it's not exactly clear why Paul makes reference to circumcision. Perhaps the false teachers were insisting that this practice needed to be done if you were to be fully accepted by God. It was, um, for Israel, the sign of the covenant that God had made with Israel. But in Christ, we see something different. Circumcision is made without hands. Paul's not talking about something physical. He's talking about something spiritual. And here's how I understand it, that the moment that you trusted Christ as your Savior, God did an invisible spiritual work of changing your heart. So then Romans 2.29, Paul says that circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Now what does it mean that Christ accomplished this spiritual circumcision for us? Paul says, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is most likely a reference to that physical death of Christ on the cross. It's a vivid uh, imagery of flesh being torn by flogging. 
of someone being led along with a beam upon their shoulders, of nails and feet being nailed to wood, of someone struggling to breathe, of a spear in the side. And Christ, as our representative, endured the circumcision for us. So that Paul could actually say in Galatians 2.22, I have been crucified with Christ. So we participate in his death. We also participate in his death, burial, and resurrection. So when Paul speaks of baptism in verse 12, that we're buried in baptism, raised through faith, I believe that he has water baptism in view here. And to be specific, I mean credo baptism. Credo comes from the Latin that means I believe. So that if a person trusts Jesus as Lord and Savior, then they're baptized. That's why there's a bunch of crazy Baptists over at Dallas's Beach dunking people under the water in front of other people. That's what we're talking about here. I wish I had more time to unpack that for you, but we're going to move forward. Look at verse 13. Not only are we uh, dead, buried, and raised in Christ, we are alive in Christ. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. You know, that, that idea of people being dead that Paul's talking about here runs contrary to human experience. I mean, there's, as you're walking about, it seems like people are incredibly alive. Some are athletic. I was just in a 5K and a guy was in his 40s and he was running like sub six-minute miles. And I was just like trying to finish. I've seen people with incredibly capacious minds. There's a scholar that I know of that reads 500 books every year. Some people are crushing it in the business world. Others are beautiful and they have charisma like movie stars. How is it that we're saying that these people are dead? We're not talking about death in body or death in mind or death in personality. We're talking about death in the most important sphere, the soul. And why is this? Well, the word trespasses explains it. It is another way of referring to sin. It means that you've made a false step, that you've knowingly crossed over a boundary that has destroyed your relationship to God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. It's been said that before you can get a person saved, you have to get a person lost. These types of things are hard to hear, but they are essential to life. Without Christ, we can do nothing to get life. The Bible says that we are dead, deaf, blind, ignorant, empty. We are like a spiritual corpse that unless God breathes life into us, we will not be made alive. And that's what Christ did. I think of that imagery of 1 Kings 17. There's a widow who has a son and he dies And the Bible says that there is no breath in him. The prophet Elijah comes 
and he prays over the boy, and it says then that he, he stretched out his entire life over the life of this boy so that his beating heart was over this lifeless heart, his warmth over his chill, his breath into his lungs. And through the power of God, the boy is raised from the dead in the same way Christ has laid the fullness of his perfect life over us so that in him we are made alive. We are made alive in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. Look at verse 14. Having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So not only are we spiritually dead, we're spiritually bankrupt. Now we might understand a little bit about debt. Americans tend to carry debts. We carry all kinds of different debt. Mortgage, school loans, car loans, home equity loans, medical bills, all kinds of loans. But I think we'd probably struggle with thinking of a debt that's just entirely crushing unless we're in significant financial straits. What if, though, you had a debt that its magnitude was so vast that you could never pay it off no matter how long you worked? And what if the penalty for non-payment was not just a bad credit record or uh, repossession of property or imprisonment, but eternal death? The record of debt that Paul describes is like the idea of an IOU. Each one of us had this legal contract with God where essentially it said, I will obey God. The Jews had the law of God. The Gentiles had a conscience that told us whether something was right or wrong. And the consequence of breaking the legal contract is eternal death in hell. That's what the IOU says. Eternal death. How could it be possible to pay back this debt? I don't care how much money you make in a lifetime, you can't pay it back how many good initiatives you align yourself with, it's never going to be good enough. How healthy you keep your body, eventually, and maybe all too soon, the debt will come due. But the Bible says the only way for this debt to be forgiven is in Christ. For everyone who believes, Christ took those IOUs and he nailed them to the cross. And when he laid down his life he laid it down on behalf of those IOUs so that in Christ we have total forgiveness. Martin Luther experienced the reality of this truth in a dream in which he was visited at night by Satan who brought him a record of his own life and it was written in his own hand. The tempter said to him, is that true? Did you write it? The poor, terrified Luther confessed it was all true. Scroll after scroll unrolled, and he had to confess again and again, that's mine? Believing he had done his job, Satan prepared to leave Luther distressed and defeated. When suddenly the reformer turned to the tempter and said, it is true, every word of it, but write this across it all. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sins. We are forgiven in Christ. Finally, we are victorious in Christ. Look at verse 15. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is a picture of a triumphal procession. Julius Caesar held one of these in ancient Rome. He had been going through Gaul and Pontus and Egypt and Africa, and he had been victorious in conquering. And so they led this procession, and what began it was all the treasures and trophies, the maps of the conquered land, then followed the captives, then followed the Roman guards called lictors who guarded authorities, sentenced for execution. And then Caesar led his army with a great chariot with three white steeds in front. It was a glorious celebration. It was a declaration of total victory. But the irony of the cross is that the symbol of shame and death that Satan and his demons attempted to humiliate and eradicate Christ with is the instrument that he used to humiliate and defeat them. It was F.F. Bruce who says, as Jesus was suspended there, bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness. Satan and his demons imagined that they had him at their mercy and flung themselves upon him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their assault without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of all their armor in which they had trusted and held them aloft in his might, outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. Now, they are disabled and dethroned. And the shameful tree has become the victor's triumphal chariot before which his captives are driven in humiliating procession. The involuntary and impotent confessors of their overcomers' superiority. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the better philosophy. You see, philosophies are ideas about ultimate things, truth, reality, eternity. What philosophy are you banking on? Is it some kind of scientific materialism that essentially says that all there is, that all that exists is what we can see with the human eye? That essentially the day that you die and you breathe your last breath, that you're just a corpse in the ground and it doesn't really matter if you died a day or a hundred years from now, it's essentially all the same? Or are you banking on that idea that your efforts will carry you through? How can you possibly pay back the debt that you owe to God? How can you bring spiritual life to yourself? Those philosophies are bankrupt. Wouldn't you rather be in Christ to share in his fullness, to participate in his life and death and resurrection, to enjoy his forgiveness and celebrate his victory? Throw away the life preservers. Jesus is the better philosophy.